Must always be kept in balance. I said, sit down. Passengers, eternal order, flow from the sacred engine. We must occupy our preordained position. I belong to the front. You belong to the tail. No doubt. Keep your place. Those bastards in the front think they own us. We'll be different when we get there. What do you say? We take the engine and we control the world. When is the time? Soon. This is disorder. We're going to the front. Open the gate. We know you well, Mr. Curtis. We've been watching you. Precisely 74% of you, you shall die. Everybody back! I'm not a leader. You're ready, This is your destiny. Okay, you're watching Movie Night Extravaganza. Um, of course, this is episode 14, uh, Snowpiercer. So I'm joined by a diverse panel, as always. Uh, Jay Andrew World, my trusty co-host. Uh, Karthik, who is um, doing revolutionary tracks on Left Flank Vets and writes uh, a, a substack called Alien Encounters. Um, Jeremy Johnson, uh, integral theorist, host of the Mutations podcast, frequent TMBS uh, guest in, in the past, and um, you know, co-host of the Brooks Books. I, I can never really say that; it's like a hard thing to say. But <laughs> uh, book club with Alicia Brooks, and of course, Andre uh, Demise, who is an editor at McLean's. Um, how's it going? McLean's. 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 Yeah, All right, John McLean. Yeah. So this is, I think, one of my. I mean, Bong Joon-ho is one of my favorite directors right now. I haven't seen everything he's done. Um, there's a bunch of stuff that I have to see. But, I mean, Parasite, obviously, is, like, the movie that inspired me to want to do a podcast like this in, like, 2019. And, um, yeah, Snowpiercer is, is up there, I think, as one of, like, the best class-based um, movies that, that's really come out in the last, I don't know, maybe since, like, the, the like New Deal era, like, labor um films when that was like kind of a popular thing yeah so, you, so you're saying something like since the 50s yeah well i mean because class is not really you know highlighted in film at least not in the u.s um at all like you know hollywood's kind of written it out 
Well, I know when this came out, um, there was a big thing in Hollywood about uh, uh, making comic book adaptations because because basically it allows a director to hand a um, uh, you know some you know a producer uh, uh, something of what the you know what the finished product's going to look like. So um, uh, all these comic book adaptations were being made right around the same time. So like was this. Um, uh, Oh, now I'm going to blank on all of them. I think History of Violence, uh, that one with uh, Tom Hanks. Um, there, there were like like a bunch of like indie books and like French books that that uh, were made in into Hollywood films all around the same time, mostly just because they were, um, uh, you know, producers were open to that at the moment. I remember Persepolis and um, like American Splendor also like being made around. I, I don't know if it was around the same time, but like so a little um, before, but like an interest in adult comics. I mean, not pornos, but uh, comic books that um, adults can read. Did Watchmen come out around the same time as Snowpiercer or was that much earlier? Okay. I think a little earlier. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's was funny. 2010 and this was. 2014 i should have done my homework about, about the year this came out oh, do i have it in front of me this, yeah. I, think came out 2013. I think this was 2013 okay but it um it, it took a while for this movie to even be distributed in the united states it was distributed internationally first um and then finally they kind of had to cut a deal with uh harvey weinstein pre-weinstein scandals and he cut a bunch of stuff out which you know of course he did um, and, I, and I have a clip about that later on, but, you know, some of the stuff uh, Bond was able to, um, like, he was able to kind of slip stuff through because he um, it kind of exploited the language gap and, like, the culture gap. So at one point, like, the they didn't want to include the fish scene, I guess, where they have the axe going into the fish. And he, like, made up this line about how um, his father was a fisherman, which he wasn't. But he, like, kind of did the thing where he's like, oh, like, it means a lot to me. My father was just, like, this lowly fisherman and, and that that... They, you know that scene was really important to my like to my family and like i guess harvey weinstein was like oh well we, we can't cut something out that's important to your family when his father was like a graphic designer this is how you use racism for good yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i think that he kind of does this a lot um like that kind of thing because um you know i have a bunch of interview clips that he's done and he kind of he's able to um, play on like you know stereotypes I think of of like Korean and and Asian uh, people it, it, like to kind of disarm um, like the, the interviewers and stuff and I don't think that necessarily a movie like Parasite would have gotten distributed in the United States if he wasn't able to kind of like make it seem like it wasn't as explicitly about class internationally as um, as it is so he kind of he kind of downplays um, those aspects of it when you can tell he's He's a brilliant guy and his movies are incredibly incisive. And I don't think that, you know, Hollywood doesn't like, like the fact that Parasite won an Oscar is like amazing. You know what I mean? Cause he had to go up, like everyone had to pretend to clap for it when it's literally a movie that's uh, kind of just destroying their class. So like having everyone in, in, in Hollywood, like pretending that they like appreciate Parasite when it's, you know, about them in a lot of ways, like that, that elite class that kind of, you know, treats everybody else like shit. Um, <laughs> I think you have to be very, uh, I think you have to be very, I don't know, the, the way that you have to handle that in, in getting through that award system is pretty amazing. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Parasite was just going kind of viral as a meme 
was it during the Bernie campaign? Was it during the pandemic when all the uh, the Hollywood celebrities were singing? And and the, yeah. there's the like memes of you know one of the protagonists driving his car and hearing somebody doing the singing, et cetera. So so there there is a there was a kind of an interesting class consciousness that was percolating uh, during the pandemic as a result, I think, of this film. Oh, Parasite particularly, but um, yeah, Bond and, films in general. Yeah, no, it's that it's that meme of um the woman on the phone in the back and and the driver that That's right. like, yeah, who's also in this movie and is in every single movie I guess that Bong Joon Ho has made. Um, that same actor he's in you know he's the he, he's the hacker uh like engineer guy in this um king ho so, uh, song he's he's fantastic yeah uh, if, no, if amazing actor. Like, uh, i really want to see his werewolf movie where he plays a cop uh who, who gets uh, bit by a werewolf um and uses his werewolf powers to solve crimes but like um uh uh, I, I I've heard of you know I like was like looking up seeing what else he's done and I saw that and I'm like, oh man I saw him play a vampire and I got to see him play a werewolf this is gonna be awesome, <laughs> uh, but no <laughs> he he's he's um uh but but if you really want to see some good stuff of his uh, I highly recommend Good Bad and the Weird uh, as a as a non uh, Bon Joon Ho it's a Korean film not made by him but with uh, Kang Ho Song and I guess there's a bunch of uh, you know South Korean directors that kind of came up together. Um, that are, they kind of had like a, a new, they, they've had like a new cinema moment, I guess, new Korean cinema, like they, they to the mm -hmm. point where they've even like given it a title, um, which, you know, it really has to be an artistic moment for people to like kind of recognize that enough to give it a title. But there's all these um, like directors that are his age in South Korea that came up during the time that they were, everybody was protesting uh, nonstop. And, you know, so Bong Joon-ho, his, his class consciousness, I guess, kind of comes out of um, this, this college protest movement that everybody was kind of rising up against the South Korean government at a time when they were transitioning from like the military dictatorship that we kind of helped impose on South Korea after the Korean war into like a more democratic slash, uh, you know, viciously capitalist society. All right. So this is, so I wanted to introduce the movie, I guess, with this, um, this is Bong Joon-ho kind of very, uh, very deftly explaining the uh, plot of Snowpiercer with Tilda Swinton. So can we talk about how the project started? Because you basically were standing in a bookshop and you yeah. fell in love with this French yeah. graphic novel called mm. Le Transpersonnage. Mm. And why did you think it could be a film? Uh, I don't know. I, I just fascinated by the graphic novel. And I read it instantly, standing in the bookshop, all the way to the end. Unfortunately, I had enough money on me to buy it. So as I was going home, I thought, by the time I got home, I thought I was going to make this into a film. There was a lot of concern from everyone else of how you're going to make this into a film, but I thought that it was possible. I think I could only make it because of Tilda. <laughs> I mean it, honestly. <laughs> and what what were the elements in the comic that made you think this is a film? Because I don't know how much you have used yeah. the original visual elements or how much you changed the story. As you see, the original concept, the basic idea is already super crazy so it's a very strange idea there's all the human survivors remain in the learning train yeah. and also the rich people in the front 
poor people in the tail section. 그 이게 80년대 중반에 나온 이야기인데 어떻게 보면 너무 보편적이고 영원한 주제를 우리가 자본주의에 살고 있는 한은 벗어날 수 없는 주제를 다룬 것 같다는 생각이 들었었고요. This is a story from the mid 80s and it has such universal and eternal themes as long as we lived in a capitalist society. 근데 이제 뭐그 기차가 1년에 똑같이 한 바퀴를 돌아서 다시 제자리로 돌아온다거나 여러 가지 디테일한 설정들은 제가 새로 만들어낸 게 많은데 일단 그 기본 발상 그 베이직 세팅 자체가 되게 위대하죠. 독특하고 방금 말한 그 달리는 기차의 생존자들이 있다는 그 발상 자체가. 방 Jun Ho could have just stood there and read it in a in a um, bookstore, and it wouldn't have taken him that long. But I guess the only two places that it was distributed at first were France and South Korea, which is an interesting detail. And it took until this film was made for it to be translated into English at all. Um, so yeah, I I think that it's interesting that it was written in the eighties, um, and obviously with Mitterrand's government in uh, France, kind of. Failing to come up with like a, a genuine left set of reforms or a genuinely even social democratic set of reforms, and instead like reverting pretty instantly to uh, neoliberalism, it, it makes for a really interesting um, time period for this movie. Obviously, Mitterrand is, is like you know one of the most awful imperialists uh, in, in in recent history, but in France he kind of had a um, when he ran for office he kind of had a socialism for us but not for them, meaning any colony that. <laughs> France really had at the time attitude towards things, and obviously he had like he pretty much um gave the order to like murder multiple leaders across Africa, like. But you know, even even on the domestic front, though, like this government, which for the first time in France's like post-war history had so-called like communist, um, you know, communist administrators, uh, or administrators from the Communist Party, um, the, you know, it kind of is one of the biggest failures of. You know, in in, in European uh, social democratic history, I think, and that's occurring just as this graphic novel comes out. Comics are a huge business in France. Um, uh, the artwork style is very similar to Mobius, um, who who is like the giant uh, artist uh, of uh, uh, of France. Um, you know, his Azraq, uh, Blueberry are absolute classics. And and the thing is, as you could tell, that like Mobius had a huge influence on the. Visuals of the book, even though they never quite achieve what Mobius does, but very few people can. That's a whole other thing. Um, uh, but like France is, is uh, so you know, comics in France are so big that like um, they actually have like social programs for for people to be able to take time out to do uh, these books. So sometimes American artists actually move to France to uh, take their time and publish books. Um, and you also have uh, the the large um, festival in France, uh, Agaram. Uh, where, where they have um, every year, uh, except for the past couple because of the uh, pandemic, but every year they have a massive festival celebrating the art of the comic and people from all around the world come to that. So, you know, uh, the, it's, it's strange that, that so little of French comics even make it to the States, um, considering how big their industry is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's also 
pretty interesting that this is pretty um even even the i mean not even but you know the the, the graphic novel is pretty explicitly about class but kind of using um world war ii imagery um more than this film is because obviously we're in a different era now but um you know in in the in the comic it seems like some kind of uh climate some kind of climate weapon which would assume probably a nuclear climate weapon um goes off which is what you know changes the climate um like so in order to make it like so cold that people can't even go outside of this train and the nazi imagery which exists in uh the the movie snowpiercer too but you know the nazi imagery is a lot more i think heightened um throughout the graphic novel so they're like the conception of fascism is, is a lot more inspired by their fears about world war ii or like the memory of world war ii i think than this movie which creates a very um a very thatcherite image of fascism which is i mean is our fascism now but you know tilda swinton's character is essentially margaret thatcher yeah i mean um the there were at least like three or four movies in which i saw um female characters being the kind of almost upholders of the patriarchy so to say like the the man behind the curtain like remains behind the curtain but the but it's 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 typically a woman uh, i think it was it's divergent uh, i think it's it has meryl streep or somebody and then uh, kate winslet is in something i i don't even know what these movies are. i just know that like these characters um are shown front and center and they're always like this extremely um you know projecting uh, their authority but it's actually not their authority it's authority that was, that has been given to them and they're basically functioning in a in a kind of middle managerial capacity um and it's and it's kind of uh, fascinating that that seems to be something that you know is both part of popular i think hunger games also has somebody like that i forget so in hunger games um a woman ends up taking over from president snow but hmm. when when uh which i mean hunger games is also a, a kind of similarly um class conscious i think um project but towards you know uh in like the third book or something the woman like there's a woman that ends up taking over the new government and then pretty much replicating the exact same system again um after they've had an entire revolution you know aimed at destroying the system uh but like the the idea of um having a woman at the head uh is kind of i mean especially in in the case of tilda swinton somebody who's exaggerated and somebody who's uh kind of i don't know you said that's right but i wonder like she's been made to look almost comically like iron rand uh, i don't know if that was intentional um if they, if they kind of wanted her to resemble more iron rand than uh, margaret thatcher Yeah, I mean, I so the reason that I say Margaret Thatcher particularly Tilda Swinton saying that she took her inspiration for playing this character from uh mm-hmm. Margaret Thatcher. Um which I I mean is like down to the accent, like the working class, somewhat working class uh like Yorkshire accent that she has. Um you know, throughout the throughout the movie and obviously her teeth are kind of, you know, she has fake teeth, she's wearing a wig like it's all of these different um uh, elements i guess that would imply that she's somebody that wasn't necessarily going to be put at the front of the train at the beginning of it as margaret thatcher was kind of you know um acting on behalf of the business classes in the uk obviously but wasn't a rich uh you know was kind of her her mythology i guess was kind of a working more working class mythology as someone who would like which made it you know far more insidious that she was the person instituting neoliberalism because it was literally the embodiment of that like bootstraps ideology 
like, oh, she pulled herself up to be the, the prime minister of uh, the UK. This is Tilda Swinton talking about the, the Thatcherite element of her character. How did you create this character then? Because some of the accounts I've read of Minister Mason describe her as, you know, a little bit Margaret Thatcher and a little yeah. bit everyone, including Silvio Berlusconi. Yeah. I can't quite see, but it, it's it's a pretty sort of heady mix as yeah. a, you know, a monstrous authority figure. And and you suggest the Yorkshire, yeah. Yorkshire well, accent. We, we thought about. We we thought about the the phenomenon of of this train. You know, this is like a free pass for fantasy. Mm. And if you're going to have some kind of malign or or a tendency towards some kind of malign authority, it's no holds barred. You can go any which way with it. And and you don't have to go very far. And remember, this is quite a long time ago, and there were all sorts of examples that we didn't have then that we have now (laughs) to draw on. But in those days, we were looking at people like uh, Colonel Gaddafi and Idi Amin and Silvio uh, Just the way in which there is a tendency in society to to find these dictators rather funny and amusing, like Mm. clowns. You know, very often there's this sense, and that those dictators can play up to that. And so we thought that we would work with that and um, and turn her into this sort of, you know, she's a construct. That's why I say this fantasy about what was going on in her cabin was real. You know, I don't know what she looks like underneath all those. Maybe those are those are fake teeth and those ridiculous bottle glasses <laughs> and the wig is clearly not fixed on because it keeps moving around. That feeling of her yeah. being a sort of. Yeah, well, there, as there, I say, there are other there examples a, of people with power with mad hair. And you remember, there was a beginning point of. The, oh, I wanted it to fall that, off, that and you wouldn't like let me. 독특한 그 미니스터 메이슨 그 룩의 어떤 시작 포인트가 있었어요. 그 레퍼런스가 있었는데 그 박물관 박물관 레이디 우리 그 무슨 사진에서 발견한 건데 새 박물관의 어떤 그 여자분의 사진을. Yeah. So there was actually a, a starting point and a reference to the unique Minister Mason's look. There was a photograph of this lady in a museum or a museum lady. 그분 가발이랑 안경이랑 이렇게 얼굴 느낌 같은 게 되게 독특했어요. Yeah. 그걸 갖고 거기서 출발을 해서 이제 저랑 프로듀서랑 이제 우리 캐서린이랑 같이 틸다의 집에 가서 막그 하루 종일 막 온갖 걸다 해본 거죠. 그 트랜스포메이션 어떻게 할 것인지 일종의 그 so her wig, her glasses, the very feeling of her face is quite uh, unique. So that was our starting point. So alongside the producer and Catherine, we went to Tilda's home and we kind of went through this transformation and it was almost like a live show to look for this look. It was just, a, you know, they came to stay and we made lunch and then after lunch we went into the drawing room and, I mean, it was like, dress up and we just started to play like a bunch of eight-year-olds and um i don't know it just sort of we we again we, but to be serious we we wanted to to have this idea for example all these fake medals i mean that's real these people they give themselves medals you know gaddafi was a great one for giving himself photographs of like honors that he that he'd made up and just pinning them on his on his uniform and 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 making up uniforms. Uh, that's that's yeah. a thing on, on surface. But this, 이, 이 인물의 출신은 
그 워킹 클래스일 것이다. 아마 저 앞쪽에 기차에서 무슨 청소하던 사람이었는데 그 윌포드의 눈에 띄어가지고 이 사람이 막 계속 이렇게 그 신분 상승을 해서 미니스터 메이슨이 됐을 것이다. 뭐 이런 얘기도 하고 그랬었어요. And we also sort of thought that perhaps the starting point for her was sort of working class. Maybe she was at the tail end as a cleaner, but she was sort of spotted by Wilford and climbed up the ranks and kind of uh, progressed in that way. And we would talk about that as well. And I was, I had a little sort of riff in my own mind about Mason and Thatcher, you know, these whole, these house builders somehow, you know, and, 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 and I just thought what, that she's what Thatcher would have been before Thatcher got all elocutioned and had her hair done. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just this fantasy about the rawness of that predicament on that train where you're not going to get edited, you're not going to get cleaned up because yeah. you are free to be as bombastic as you want to. And, and also the, her first image in the movie was also very important because the movies, in the opening movie start from the tail section. So we, we, don't, we still don't know what it looks like in, in the very front section, mm. the rich people. But this person is coming, so when she comes, she's kind of alluding to what it might be like at the front section of the train. You can only see as far into the trains as the character uh, that Chris Evans plays really progresses. So really, that was quite important. And that whilst they were sort of imprisoned at the tail section, you didn't know what the front section would look like. But it was really symbolized by her. Yeah, so I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, how, how deeply they went into thinking about the class structure of where she would have come from and um, you know, who she was inspired by, how working class, um, you know, working class people like at some points in history work their way up to becoming the, the most insidious um, enforcers of a class structure. Like, you know, as Margaret Thatcher did um, as a perfect example, like the, you know, the, like the fact that, you know, she probably is from the, uh, and like the grotesque look of it, like she probably is from the tail section of the train, her teeth are not like, you know, I mean, are, are not good, like obviously they're dentures, which is kind of funny because, you know, you think that she would get better <laughs> dentures as the enforcer of like Wilford's ideology on the train. But like, you know, you can, you can tell that, you can tell that they really thought about that part of it. And um, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily love that they keep mentioning Gaddafi as like a, <laughs> as like their example of the other person that they thought about this with. Friend of the show. Yeah, friend. Of <laughs> no, but you know, because in the same way that uh, I guess other like other leaders got used, Gaddafi kind of got used as a boogeyman when he really didn't have the power or influence to be what we created as like a a Libyan threat. Like there is no Libyan threat within you know within Gaddafi's assassination. Like it, it devolved because it was never like. It's not like, you know, they had like a, a, a coalition of people. Reagan was looking for a boogeyman um, and the boogeyman was continuously used throughout, you know, the next few decades. But it, it is interesting, though, that they, they Margaret Thatcher, um, watching her get completely uh, decimated in that interview in front of a BFI audience. Um, <laughs> I, I, but, I actually take exception to the... Um... 
I take exception to the you know Colonel Gaddafi awarding himself himself medals, uh, because most of the medals that you you would see, like most of the um, uh, the decorations on his uh, on his uniform, were actually awarded by foreign governments. There was only uh, I think two or three that were awarded within Libya, and then the remainder were all offered by like uh, like North Korea. Um, I think like. Pretty sure, like Yugoslavia had awarded him medals, uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland had awarded him medals. So, I mean, was he, was he supposed to do like not wear them? I, I don't yeah. know. I, I find that I find that really I find that like even though she's uh, trying to get into like the class aspect and and trying to like have conversations about um, the uh, the way that like ruling class and subordinate classes play out, it's also incredibly like chauvinistic and ignorant of her to assume that like some. What she sees as like a, a you know tin pot third world dictator is just awarding himself medals, and this isn't something that was actually bestowed on him by by other governments that you know recognized his uh, whatever it is that they recognized in in him, whether it's like leadership or courage or whatever the hell. Uh, but that these are fake, yeah. And it's and it's at a time I think probably I mean I, I don't necessarily know when that interview was shot, but Snowpiercer is coming at a time when uh, Gaddafi had that really just grotesque assassination by the, the u.s government like it's, yeah. it's at a time when you probably shouldn't be being like you know margaret thatcher gaddafi same same level same <laughs> this this makes me wonder how much like you know um i don't know if this is like a good place to like start talking about the movie but um the the question of how much bong jin ho and uh tilda swinton are actually uh, or like have solidarity with the working class in this case, like, you know, uh, which class do they belong to or like do they identify with uh, in a way? Because like, you know, she is playing a Margaret Thatcher type character, she says, but Tilda Swinton, the actress is also, you could argue someone who is at the front of the train, right? Like, yeah, I mean, no, she's Tilda Swinton not... is, is very much at the front of the train. Like how, right. how much how much cultural influence she's had in different movies. Like she's someone who's sitting at the, the, the front car. So, so in the, in this case, like just just asking the question of what um, really the movie can, like you know, both intellectually as well as in in more uh, more like a social term, a social impact level, like what it could accomplish. Uh, what do you what do you think the film uh, was able to intellectually accomplish as far as like uh, putting forth a you know like a manifesto uh, for the working class or like a, or like a sort of roadmap for what. Uh, the working class can do to like actually uh, progress to the front of the engine and like successfully derail it. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't provide a manifesto for what the working class can successfully. Um, yeah, but, but like we're kind of at a point where just the fact that I mean it's it's sad that we're at this point, but just the mention of class as a as a central theme in this movie resonates because it's like, well, who the fuck else is really mentioning class within cinema? Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that it, I mean, the only way that in this movie they can successfully derail the train is by literally blowing it up. Uh, like, like there's no, you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't provide any kind of manifesto for any kind of policy besides that. Like you kind of got to have to get a, get to the front of the train in order for you to be able to derail it. It seems to be that that's kind of like the central message, right? Like the, the Chris Evans character is kind of like ineffectual until um, the group of them reaches like as a sort of crew. Uh, they make their way to the front of the train, and then they have some kind of power. So it does does seem to have like some kind of sense of this is kind of how you take power and um, like do what needs to be done. Well, I think that's I think that's very true. Like 
um, if you consider that in the movie, they, you know, for decades, um, or years or decades, I'm not exactly sure uh, what the passage of time is between the train taking off and the events as they're described in the movie, but... I think it's 17 years on the train because she says she's 17 years old and he says, you're a train baby. Yeah, so um, there, there were, like, multiple attempts at revolution previously, but most of the violence, like, most of the, the, the most, like, grotesque violence, it takes place in the rear car where all of the, uh, the poor passengers are at. So I, I think it's a fairly, um, I think it's a fairly like true to life representation because, you know, where wherever you find poverty, you'll always find violence, and you know most of the uh, um, the structural violence is is borne out among the lower classes um, by violence that people in places of poverty inflict on each other, and the only way to really upset the system is to be able to challenge the system where it where the seat of power lies in in any previous revolution if you look at for example like the haitian revolution or the russian revolution like the haitian revolution struck at france's most um most uh you know plentiful colony in the new world uh, haiti was uh, france's crown jewel and then once haiti fell france ended up pulling their stakes that's why the Louisiana Purchase took place because there were the 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 land interest that France had um, in in America was no longer lucrative because they didn't have Haitian labor and the sugar economy backstopping it. Same thing for the uh, the Russian Revolution. I mean, you you can't have a full fledged revolution without uh, like a cooperation from bourgeoisie elements and b um, striking at the heart of power, which was the uh, the the uh, aristocracy so i i can see how i can see how that makes complete sense because that's pretty much the way that any revolution any successful revolution is done yeah and um i mean i don't know i was thinking about specifically the haitian revolution yesterday because it was the uh the anniversary of of you know the launch of the haitian revolution and you know napoleon uh you know like the, like you know the, the younger napoleon Napoleon the Lesser, I guess, um, his his big plan was to actually take over America um, while he had Haiti. And when Haiti fell, he obviously had to like concede and give it, you know, give the Louisiana Purchase to Jefferson. But the original plan was to land on America's shores and try to take it over as an imperial power. Um, while, you know, keeping all of the, I think the system the way it was, but with the French flag over it. <laughs> right. In that case. But, um, yeah, and you know it's interesting to mention the Haitian uh, Revolution because you know the the class system in Haiti is a lot more. Um, I mean, like like reading a book like Black Jacobins, like the the, the class system in Haiti is a lot more easy to understand how uh, slavery and class were interrelated because obviously there were a lot of um, like like free black. Haitians that ended up also becoming slave owners because that was kind of the way to make it into the aristocracy was to have enough power in that in that situation that you would you know have your own plantation, um, which it, it's I don't know. So I was thinking about that actually a lot yesterday when I was thinking back to reading the Black Jacobins in a similar way to how um, to how Tilda Swinton's character you know plucked from the the like the back of the train car becomes kind of the enforcer of the, that same class system. And replicates it, and in the same way that obviously uh, Chris Evans' character in this um, is 
seriously thinking about becoming the head of the train car and replicating the same system when offered that opportunity he doesn't have like he hesitates like it's not like he it's not like he's the one that blows up the entire train he's kind of he, he sits there and thinks about it and kind of is left in this like stupor of like should i do it should i create a more humane version of this which he wouldn't that's like that's not going to happen you know what i mean like the second you take that you take control of the train in, in this movie like you would have to replicate the exact same system um so you know he's not the one that ends up blowing up the train by any stretch of the imagination which uh, brings me actually to, to one of the things that bugged me about the movie was um every actor in this film is like oozing with charisma even like the smaller uh actors like uh you know um allison pill who, who uh uh you know was a school teacher uh and, and um chris evans was basically playing it like um uh you know like uh, uh like uh i just blanked on the uh the term there's a scott mcleod uh famously uh, laid this out in understanding comics about how you you draw I've, things. I, actually, that's a book that I've read because my my mom was teaching uh, graphic design when I was a kid. Oh, it's, it's a phenomenal book. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, you know that's like a gateway drug to Marshall McLuhan. But uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, it, it, you know, it's like you draw a face that's uh, that's uh, simple enough everybody can relate to it. And Chris Evans was supposed to be like this character relates. You know, we're supposed to relate to, which is why he's kind of um, he doesn't want to be a leader. And yet he kind of is the leader because he's like, you know, because uh, it's it's our inner fantasy to become a leader. And, and so it, it's like uh, he's basically our, you know, he's the only person there for that. That's uh, that's representing us as the viewer, um, which is why also he doesn't you never actually see him make any real decision beyond just like, you know, the, the initial catalyst of, you know, uh, pushing, you know, uh, pushing for yeah, that. Yeah, the yeah, no. The only the only real decision he makes is the impulsive decision to put the gun against his head to prove that there are no bullets. Which, if, if there was bullets, would have I mean the movie wouldn't have taken place. But he also would have been a martyr, I guess. Um, and there's also when when he talks about how he originally was the guy with the knife and he was the one that was going to like you know kill the mother to eat the child that ended up being his second in command. Like it's a, it's kind of an insidious message um, in its own way because. You know, you have to wonder, like, how early did they see this revolutionary spirit or this so-called revolutionary, revolutionary spirit in him to lead this manufactured revolution? Um, you know, where where Will, like Wilford is, is literally manufacturing this conflict to try to get as many people out of the train, like the, the, the back of the train as he can, which makes it interesting that in the graphic novel version of it, um, like that nuance doesn't really take place. And the plan is literally just to get everyone in the back of the train and cut the cord. Like there is no final train car anymore. <laughs> that That's something that um, I kind of wanted to also, uh, I mean, throw out to you guys uh, to ask uh, that this, scene, this film seems to be aware of the element of counter revolution and like how uh, you kind of have to engage with the idea of like the system being prepared for something like this. In fact, like, uh, the an uprising itself being something that sustains the system and like how uh, fascist power like doubles down and uh, kind of uh, makes a like um, um, does several massacres in many using many different uh, you know forms of ammunition um, and like how 
uh, this this film seems to be aware of the idea that like the system is ready for uh, revolution and is actually able to handle it with uh, with a lot of force and effectiveness, both uh, culturally through propaganda as well as um, you know physically through violence. Yeah, there there was um, something I wanted to, to to bring up about that. There's a kind of way in which it's speaking to Fisher's capitalist realism, right? Yeah. In the sense that it's like, it anticipates a revolution, it actually encourages it, and it subsumes it as part of this process in which it can continue to subsume the dialectic in more complex ways. Like 100%. anytime there's an iteration of revolution, 100%. it's ready for it. And so it's like, and, and that's sort of the, the capitalist realist conundrum that our protagonist is in when he's in the front of the train, he's, and he's talking with Wilfred, and he's like, this is just how it runs. Like, this is the reality. Without this, we all freeze. And you see, like, yeah, it sucks what we have to do, but this is just how we keep humanity alive. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting, too. And um, there's a few other tangents, but I'll, I'll hold on to those about uh, the Italian futurists. And we, we could touch no, on that. 100%. It, it subsumes the real. Like, you know, in this case, the real being revolution as part of a, a capitalist structure that you know, the only way that they believe um, the train can keep going is like this eco-fascism element of it, where it's like, oh, we need to maintain balance. The only way to maintain balance is population control. Um, so you know, the the system itself um, not only anticipates but manufactures these revolutions um, in order to to keep itself running at a, at a rate that they that they can. Has anyone read uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's the one the ones who walk away from Omelas? or Omelas. It's an, it's, it's an interesting short story in which I know we're skipping to the end of the film, but, but you know, the, the kid who's working in the machine, who's small enough to squeeze in and to fix the, the engine. Um, and, and very often is basically sacrificed in order to do that job. This short story by Le Guin, I kind of wonder if, if Bong actually had read this because it's basically mm -hmm. about this wonderfully utopian society that, you know, everybody, uh, receives benefits and things are very peaceful, but it's all at the context of, or, or all at the um, the sacrifice of one kid who's sort of like in the heart of the city and is horribly treated and is basically tortured. And that's like the sacrifice to make sure everyone else is, is, uh, is doing okay. But I just, I just thought there was an interesting parallel there between uh, maybe Bong's writing for this particular story and, and Le Guin, but yeah. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't read that. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's interesting also that the implication of uh, when, when the kid is taken and Tilda Swinton says Wilfred likes kids has a very specific, obviously, implication for the way that children are obviously treated in a capitalist neoliberal society and also the, the, the uh, implications of like pedophile circles that run through the elite classes. Um, which is something that's not really ever explicitly talked about within the movie, but in, in the graphic novel, um, you know, the, the, like there's rampant sexual assault throughout the graphic novel. Like people are just plucked out of not just the, the back of the car. People are plucked out of like the, the sec cause in, in the, in the graphic novel it's divided into a first class, a second class, a third class, which probably would be the case if it was a, a luxury, uh, train in, in that context. And, um, so people are even plucked out of like the second class to be sexually assaulted. Hmm. Uh, so it's interesting that that implication is in there without, um, with her being like, Oh, don't worry. Wilfred likes kids. And it's like, 
<laughs> I was actually surprised in the graphic novel when they went through the Galaxy Pizza car. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought that joke was funny. <laughs> it it just you makes sense. Uh, the the both the I don't know about the um, graphic novel, but like the movie at least definitely seems to suggest quite blatantly that the power elite is engaged in a form of eugenics, like um, and like they don't want to consider it uh, eugenics because you know like immediately it it raises like all kind all kinds of like alarms etc. But um, I don't think the the whole idea of like the social experiment they, they seem to be completely aware of uh, the kind of sacrifices that they need to make on a day to day basis. And they're completely ready to make it like as a matter of fact. And and the the way that the framing is done, I think they make this Tilda Swinton character say it. And like uh, it's also interesting that she is uh, her grotesque. Like I think image might also uh, make her like a wonderful scapegoat, right? Like because she's like the person that takes the fall for all the things that she has to do, and she's gladly doing. But at the end of the day, she's also saying stuff like you know you got to get rid of this much people. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like a pretty blatant kind of um, cost benefit analysis that like, you know, even, I don't know, um, I forget his name, the the philosophy dude from Harvard um, had this lecture where he, Sandel, um, he talks about how putting an extra seatbelt in a car like means that you have to make a decision of how much a person's life is worth, et cetera. And like these kind of decisions do suggest that like, you know, that these people are making these decisions uh, regarding like putting a cost value, a dollar value on a person's life and uh, kind of deciding to sacrifice it anyway. And like this is the kind of thing that's often not explicitly, I think, spoken about uh, other than in like an exaggerated or fetishized way, like in Hunger Games. But like in this case, like I think in this movie, he's pretty much giving it straight, saying that these people are making this cost benefit analysis and like you're just and you're eating each other and that's a, that's another thing as well like people are eating each other in the um at the back of the back of the train um like th that's the joke right like he says I, I i hate the fact that i know what people taste like um i think chris evans says that in, uh, yeah. in the clip yeah yeah um and also the the um automatic uh the automatic reversion, I guess, or, or you know, the automatic um, acceptance of eco-fascism as the, like, the, the, like any kind of climate catastrophe happens, um, humanity is automatically kind of, or in this, I mean, in this case, humanity, but I think society itself here, I think about this a lot, like the fact that when, you know, right now we're kind of at this weird position where um, like oil companies and the Republican Party and all of these like right-wing forces are kind of still denying that climate change exists. But there's going to come a time where you can't deny that climate change exists and the automatic reversion is going to be some kind of environmental fascism. Like the, the idea that, you know, population control needs to exist. I mean, right now, like they have Bill Gates, uh, Bill Gates like is out there saying like, oh, well, you know, in, in third world countries, you know, quote unquote, like, uh, not in the way that that term should be used, but like, you know, in, in poorer countries, um, like the only way to, to deal with it is population control. But there's going to come a time when both political establishments in the United States accept that the only way to deal with a climate crisis is like environmental fascism. And in this movie, they seem to accept that intrinsically, which is, um, I think, uh, a prescient warning. Well, if you go back to our uh, conversation with Lee Phillips, we kind of touched on this a little bit with uh, 70 Cinema uh, and, and the whole um, 
uh, life draft Earth uh, concept, uh, which which is kind of the beginnings of the the um, anti-immigrant movement in the U.S. It yeah. is through this uh, eco-fascist um, uh, movement that was uh, started in the um, uh, I just Sierra Club, um, believe it or not, uh, that the Sierra Club was actually promoting. Um, basically, you know, kind of eugenics and, and allowing in immigrants and that kind of stuff, uh, you know, back in the, uh, the the 60s and 70s. And you can also see it a bit in, in like older science fiction. If you look at like uh, uh, ZPG uh, or um, uh, Logan's Run or, or any of those uh, weird uh, things about overpopulation, um, Soylent Green, can't forget that one. That's the big one, uh, you know, about overpopulation and running out of supplies. Uh, you see this a lot. And, and we haven't really seen that in cinema since the 70s. I mean, the 80s was a kind of a weird utopianism, uh, like a neo-capital, neo-liberal uh, um, capitalist utopianism uh, of uh, uh, of things as a good thing in, in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, you know, like um, uh, even like, but there was also like, uh, you know, there's the end of the world too. Uh, mostly in, in uh, sci-fi, um, you know, uh, not not as much utopian as it was end of the world, but uh, you know, going back to Mark Fisher, you know, it's, you can more easily, you know, see the uh, end of the the world than you can the end of capitalism. Media certainly helped with that because we never saw the end of capitalism in media. And and yeah. the few and the few people that kind of you know, made, I mean, we've done our Alex Cox uh, watch through the few people that worked with anti-capitalist forces, and you know during that time period, we're just literally just blacklisted um, mm -hmm. from ever making a movie in Hollywood again, which is a pretty clear message to anyone that would have given any kind of money to the Sandinistas while the Contras were, you know, running rampant through the fuck through Central America during Operation Condor. Like the, the fact that like, you know, all right, we just will never let you make a movie again. There was sort of an interesting moment in revisiting the film where I was thinking that, okay. And, and, and after the comic, as well, checking that out for the first time, my immediate impression of the comic book was, okay, nuclear winter. Whereas the film, my immediate impression of the film was, okay, climate disaster, right? Climate change disaster, earth enters the kind of ice age. Or, <laughs> I wasn't even thinking along those lines, just like, okay, this must be some anthropogenic climate change scenario where like the earth falls into some kind of great ice age. But I didn't even think nuclear winter for the film, right? So, so I, I, it's interesting how that sort of, there's been sort of a mutation or a permutation of that sort of setting of, of something's gone, gone on with the climate and ecology, whether it's uh, the, the nuclear age or now with the, uh, the, the climate disaster age. So yeah, yeah. And then the totalitarian response, which is concerning. So for sure. Um, I think that one thing is that, you know, um, it's interesting that in the, the graphic novel it's kind of debated, like, is, is it a climate weapon? Or is it, you know, an, an accidental, um, some kind of accidental malfunction that turns the Earth into a, a nonstop winner? Which I think in the graphic novel it's implied that no, it's the climate weapon that goes awry, or or does what it's supposed to do, and then they only, I don't know, they, they, you know what I mean? So whether it's an accident or on purpose, that's not really debated in the movie. In the movie, it's literally just that they've tried to cool the Earth down, and it's and it's kind of malfunctioned into this um which wilford knew about so assumably um purposely turned into this uh just this one train going around in circles and um another point in that i guess is that the uh 
Wilfred clearly has these grievances towards whoever doubted him or doubted that having a luxury train car would have been a, a good solution to this. Because when the kids are in the school, um, he's like, the kids are like, oh, you know, they thought that Mr. Wilfred was crazy for having this luxury train car that, you know, would have gone around the earth. But he really showed them. And that the implication of that isn't obviously that Wilfred caused the thing. The implication is that Wilfred still has grievances for the past uh, existence of a global society where everyone was like, oh, your luxury train car isn't going to go anywhere. And so it kind of assumes the, the, the right-wing obsession with personal grievance, which exists on the left too in different ways. But, you know, um, I think I think grievance plays a, a huge part in, in kind of like the acceptance of fascism. Um, so I, that I think that was an interesting addition to the story. I was going to mention two things. Like one, at the end of the film, I, I found this really interesting that, that uh, Bong is essentially, in my reading of it, providing an exit strategy to the whole machinery of, of capitalist realism, which is, it's an ecological message, actually. It's saying like, okay, yeah, you're right that life is not guaranteed outside of this way of life, but there's life out there. There's non-human life out there that you might be able to re-engage in a different context, in a different relationship from, you know, this sort of techno machine world. And I, I, you saw my post in the in our back channel too, talking about like my read of the the sacred engine is this sort of modernist techno vitalism that capitalism needs to run on. Right, things need to go faster. Technology needs to keep innovating. Things need to keep moving forward in a linear sense. Even and in, in spite of and throughout the climate disaster, we just have to pedal harder, right? We have to make ensure that this class dynamic and this structure continues. And in some ways, um, even though it, it might be a kind of uh, visionary flight or line of flight to, to, to propose that there's something outside of that, I still really liked the ending, the, the fact that, yes, actually, the whole thing gets derailed, but there's there's life after capitalism. Yeah, and they've, and they've lied, and they've lied throughout the movie and said, oh, all life ceases to exist and you know there's at least a polar bear yeah yeah that's the context right it's not just the polar bear it's like okay where there's a polar yeah. bear there's 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 prey which means there's an ecology which means there's more context besides this one linear dissociated machine world where uh we're forced to devour each other right so i kind of wanted to frame this as a question um like do you think the movie portrays a successful revolution or like a kind of you know the, the flight flight 93 one as they uh as the republicans love calling it every time there's an election like what is it a successful revolution or it's just like someone rushing the you know just like doing a desperate attempt to just do anything at all i mean i guess this is a um an interesting point to bring this up uh one of the honestly one of the most vapid seeming um Hollywood interviewers that's that I saw an interview with uh, Bong Joon-ho um, at the end of it he goes well it seems like the only way that you could possibly uh, change the train car is to uh, is to derail it and like literally blow it up is that what you're saying so uh, it's a sci-fi film and of course in this genre you can perhaps even in a cheesy way but very direct way just talk about uh, these large subject matters um, and he feels that the character of Song Gang-ho is actually the one who delivers the message that the director was trying to convey to the audience. 
the Chris Evans character is the leader and he's the main character and he's trying to move forward on the train and change the system that exists but ultimately he's still just trying he's still just inside the train whereas Nam he wants to open the door and go outside and so in 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 a sense he's the true revolutionary um so he just tried to convey this simple and direct uh, message uh, within this genre context. So basically, it's not possible to change the system from the outside, from the inside. 그건 되게 복잡한 정치적인 논쟁을 수반할 것 같은데, 그건 여기서보다는 이따가 술한잔 하면서 나랑 얘기해 봅시다. So that kind of opens up a can of worms, and it's a very complicated political debate that could start. So let's talk about that over drinks after this. <laughs> but I, I do. I think that it is the kind of the message that the only way to, um, you know, break the frame of of having this train is to derail it. I think that is very much what he's saying. I don't think that this movie could survive in in a in a neoliberal capitalist uh, system if he openly was like blow up the train but like that does seem to be the implication so so what does the blowing of blowing up of the train mean is the question like is is this is this like a successful blowing up of the train in the sense that the train is blown up and like what there's a lot of people on it what happens to what happens to those people those people die um, those people die. Like, there, no there's no other there's like the train blows up and literally like uh, an avalanche hits it like that that's really one of the most um i guess amazing parts of the movie in some ways because so many things hit the train at once and obviously there's just the elite class people like looking out the window like oh wow like wow the, what's happening out there an avalanche hits the train the train blows up from the front and then derails off the tracks everybody on that train died besides you know the two survivors falls off the bridge yeah well, I imagine there might be a few survivors in there, to be honest with you, but like... It you fell know, off of like a, a track that literally yeah. was... Well, what about like, people like, in the tunnel? I mean... <laughs> so so that's kind of something that makes me wonder if like the... the I mean, of course, the entire uh, movie is a, is a metaphor, but, but like even the end, the, the two survivors could, could be seen as like more allegorical than like literal, that like it was only two people and like uh, some kind of weird, twisted... Garden of Eden type of myth. Yeah, um, that's the, well, that not, they're going not, back not to. Even the Garden of Eden is, you know, in a like a Noah's Ark almost allegorical kind of way, right? It's a, I mean, it's one, it's one woman, one man. I mean, he's a kid, but like in that, and you know, it's it's enough to replicate the human race, but not anything past that. I mean, Andre hasn't talked in a while, and I'm interested in his answer to this. I guess. I was actually going to ask him a question about the polar bear since, you know, he's up there in Canada. Um, <laughs> I don't know the, uh, well, to, I guess like to jump to the, the question about the polar bear, um, that's a pretty fucking bleak ending because that polar bear, uh, I mean, they have to, I forget how much of their body weight they have to eat in food on a regular basis. And if that's a mother polar bear, she's obviously going to have to like feed her young. So nobody's fucking survived that movie. Um, the, the polar bear to me, <laughs> Signify like nobody made it out alive. Like nature, all nature polar really bear has all the other polar bears too. So you know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a polar bear class society. That's the. Uh... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry. Get, get back to your question. No, I, I, I think that I mean I don't know. I was just asking um, what what Karthik was talking about with um, you know what what the ending really signifies, and 
whether it's really just suggesting that I guess somebody else has to be killed off in this sense when the train derails, like I, just just the significance of the ending of this movie. Um, um, I don't I don't think it's suggesting that you know humanity has to die off. I I think I think what it does suggest is that like you know the the systems that we um that we find ourselves in are just not sustainable like it it just has to end i don't I, the bleakness of everybody on the train dying i think is just a just the nature of the plot like in order to you know uh blow up the uh social system you essentially are blowing up the train along with it like there's no way that that train would be able to keep everybody alive as has already been mentioned um, so I think that was just a, a, a function of the plot itself, but I don't think it's really trying to say anything. We're trying to make any pronouncements about society as a whole. Yeah. And, and the train, I mean, the train is, you know, the, the, the system itself, which is interesting to put it into the context of like a, like a living organism almost in the sense of like the way that they, the way that they treat the engine is like the engine is like the heart of a living organism. Um, yeah. that's going around in circles endlessly. And there's, there's nothing, there's nothing saying that everybody, you know, everybody died like i'm pretty sure that there was a significant death toll but i don't think there's anything to say that everybody who wasn't at the head of or at the uh, the front of the train died i'm pretty sure there were some survivors but that polar bear might have gotten them yes <laughs> <laughs> but it can't get us all you know can't get us all yeah but I, I mean, I don't know. The, the the way the train is blown up is is pretty incredible like you know because it's not just blown up it's on a ledge um falls off the ledge and am like an avalanche hits it you know what i mean like like all of those things happen at once which is the way that i think um you know un under a, a world that's experiencing severe environmental disaster is kind of incredibly prescient like you know things don't just fail like it's not like one thing fails it's that you know environmentally everything fails at once in different ways and it's honestly terrifying but throughout the movie the kind of question is um you know wilford wants to kill off like 74 percent of the working class uh yeah. over like that like they bring up that number a bunch of times and then um you know chris evans character uh is kind of suggesting maybe everybody in the back of the train would survive and then it would be a more egalitarian society um which isn't going to happen it's just going to be back to him taking over for wilford so he doesn't really he doesn't have a plan for once he gets to the front of the train the plan is just like oh maybe we're not going to like we're gonna massacre the the, the class above us, um, in some ways, yeah. and it, without any kind of statistic or number. And then the end of the movie, obviously, is like no, like the whole system has to get blown up. Like these these conversations that they're having, these debates that you know about statistics, how many people have to die under this eco fascist train uh, society. Um, you know, it, it just the whole thing has to get blown to smithereens, and then Boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which, um, which, I, I haven't I haven't read the I haven't read the graphic novel, but is there? Um, I'll send you a link. Okay, now the the graphic novel. When did they ever discover what the source is of the food that they're that they're being fed, like the protein blocks? It's uh, it's it's very weird. They have like like this meat. I, I don't know what, what everyone it's else. Like a, a, it's an organism of living meat that's constantly growing, and they just trim it off the meat. And they're like, I think it feels pain when you cut it, but it's constantly growing. And, and it was just, um, okay. it, it it's a really, uh, it would have actually been fascinating to explore in the film, um, but instead they 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 made the bugs thing. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I they... was I was I was expecting that um, when they opened the uh, uh, the food processing unit, and you see like Chris Evans's face as his eyes go wide. I thought it was going to be people. Well, yeah, I thought that was actually, I thought that was a bit of a cop out actually. We're 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 kind of force fed bugs as a form of I mean die in a lot of cases for products yeah. now. Like Chris, you know what I mean? Chris Evans being surprised, like oh my god, it's bugs! Like, bro, it, you're eating bugs anyway. But um, yeah. and, I, and it's, in our in our lifetime, like we are going to we are going to hit the pause and bugs breakpoint. Yeah, like it's gonna, for anybody who's alive right now, they are going to hit the breakpoint at some. So it's just like you get used to it, you know. <laughs> um, I, I actually have a vegetable garden myself, and I I uh, pulled out a few zucchinis, and uh, I, I I'm doing organic gardening. I don't use any pesticides, so it really. Uh, threw me for a loop when a grub worm outside of my notice had crawled out of a zucchini and was on my kitchen floor and because it was laying still i thought it was a piece of like bocconcini uh which my kids had been eating a couple days before and i pick it up and the motherfucker starts moving and i, <laughs> I got so grossed out i like i I, you know, I put it down and i swept it into like um into a little bin and then threw it outside then I thought to myself, like, why am I so grossed out by that? At some point, like, this is going to be a food staple, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it is. It's already a food staple. We just, in, in ways that are kind of kept from us. And, Abstracted and, and, away from, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah. I, I, I kind of uh, had a similar uh, situation in terms of, um, I, I had these beetles this, this summer in, in plants that I was growing um, that, uh, like, on my, on my deck, there were these plants that were growing. And the beetle literally crawled into the plants and laid eggs and just devoured them. And I was, I don't know, I was, I was honestly disillusioned. Now I want to go eat those beetles because they had, they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just uh, throw a bit of seasoning salt on them and, you know, put them, over, uh, put them, yeah, on, put them you know, on a, on a saute pan, you know, they're yeah. supposed to be really good with, uh, with, with uh, guacamole. Um, uh, cause, uh, <laughs> in Mexico, a uh, grasshopper uh, to uh, tacos is a delicacy. And they do. Uh, they serve it up with avocado. There you when go. I was in, uh, when I went to when I went to Austin, um, you know, in, in I guess June technically May June that 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 you remember that week I took off where I, where I went to Austin for that uh, and just inevitably stayed there for a few weeks. Um, I got these lollipops that I ended up giving to my family as like a present that had uh, the mezcal worms at the center of the lollipop. And everybody else was like, yo, what the fuck is this? Why are you giving us a lollipop that literally has worms in it? And I was like, I don't know. It's a mezcal worm. Like, people drink them anyway. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about, like, ecological disaster, we're probably going to be eating, A, a lot more bugs and also, B, learning, like. So I've been doing some studies of, like, in, in indigenous sort of regenerative um, agricultural technologies. And it's really interesting how a lot of indigenous communities created these food forests. But part of that was actually like finding the right bugs and then picking them off particular plants and then bringing them and migrating them to different areas to make sure that they help to curate their own food forest and take away the, the bad bugs, basically the ones that would be parasitical. So I'm just saying our, either, either us or our, you know, next generations or two are going to be learning all of this stuff again. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, I see my my bug problem is not that I don't like that I'm afraid that bugs are gonna end up in the food. It's that bugs to fucking devour the food. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in the wrong places. So 
knowing that you know that that is a solution to it is is interesting. I think we've had obviously though bad problems with that because not bugs, but like you know other species in general are constantly introduced to um, different different places, thinking like, oh well, this eats this here. This like this is our I guess uh, like our, our far more imperial version of this. Like, what if we brought cane toads to fucking uh, Australia and then the cane toads take over Australia? So it's like this assumption that like maybe something if you bring it from one place like from South America to Australia is going to you know um, interact with the environment the same way. I think uh, is is ghastly to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's like that's the exact opposite of what like indigenous communities were doing and cultures, which is like they're place based. They understand the different relationships and contexts. And then, you know, within that context, they'll kind of rearrange things a little bit and shift yeah. things around. It's, it's really interesting. But yeah, our, our way of doing it is, is <laughs> imperialist. We're going to we're going to colonize uh, Australia with cane toads. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I guess uh, this is probably a good place to. Um, ask for final thoughts about this movie. Um, there's a lot to break down throughout this movie. I mean, one one thing I guess I wanted to bring into the conversation really briefly is the explicit, and this is a small detail, but the explicit connection that Bong Joon makes between um, Bong Joon Ho makes between, and this is not in the graphic novel, um, nursery rhymes. And I brought this up at the beginning of our you know, before we were recording. The the explicit connection he makes between nursery rhymes, which you know obviously as a function are supposed to warn or uh make children understand things about society as a whole uh being used for literal fascist propaganda which they are a hundred percent they are but it, it's kind of one of the most grotesque and like uh, you know uh, amazing scenes in the movie where the kids are like just willing to accept like what happens if the train car ends we all freeze and die and there's this final moment that i noticed where um you know the the teacher even makes like a, a a nazi salute which is kind of the one explicitly um the, the one explicitly world war ii reference that really happens which uh, you know there's, there's sprinkled throughout the entire graphic novel i mean that was that was a, a lot to bite off for a final thought to be, yeah. to be honest um i don't know i guess my my, my final thought is uh i actually kind of i i'm gonna diverge from that point a little bit to say that um I, I really do appreciate um, Bong Joon-ho consistently, um, you know, putting class narrative into his film. And I, I think that given that, uh, like, I'm a, I'm a high believer in the idea that, that uh, politics lives downstream from culture. And I really wish that there would be more people um, willing to take a chance and push, um, class-based or like proletariat art it's like film music whatever i think that we're entirely populated by critics like there's a lot of people who have like socialist politics as critics but i think that there just aren't enough um and i'm not saying that there aren't enough artists i'm saying there aren't enough artists who have broken into some sort of mainstream um mainstream awareness but i i i i would really like to see a lot more people um, with socialist or at least class conscious leanings, um, put forward literature, music, art, film, etc. Because I don't think it's going to be easy to change any of these political paradigms without generating popular support for it. And it's on the backs of a few very well known creators to consistently do that. Like, 
But anytime that you see a rich person say something completely ridiculous and out of touch, it's a Bong Joon-ho meme that immediately shows up. You know, the picture of yeah. uh, the driver from Parasite, right? So it does resonate with people at a certain level. And I think there is a lot more room for this mode of thought to develop. We just need to see a lot more artists uh, putting their work forward. Yeah, and I think that the, you know, I mean, intrinsically as working class or, I mean, working class maybe as a as a somewhat, um, you know, broad category, but like in general, people intrinsically understand that an elite, an, an elite in all of these societies controls culture, controls the narrative. And, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, and, and you can and you can see that, um, you know, you know, constantly. And then when that elite is kind of trashed by anybody that like parasite meme comes up because it's like that is a perfect expression of, you know, the out of touch um, context in which, you know, a lot of these people um, comment on society's issues in general. Um, so it, it is I mean, the class consciousness in some ways, I mean, it's not totally there. And it may be in the sense of people understanding that capitalism is to blame for that system but like the the apparatus of understanding that elite uh elite groups don't quite understand you know the 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 class structure beneath them is very much there in a, in at, at least a populist way um which is not where i would want to take it i would want to take it to a blowing up the train <laughs> version of that but like at, at the very least like it is understood that, you know, if you're using the metaphor that Bong Joon-ho puts out, like the front of the train is trampling on, on, on the on the tail end of the train and any any chance to kind of subvert that relationship needs to be taken. I think every uh, kind of revolutionary artist uh, who, I mean, prior to Snowpiercer, I can like go back to the Matrix probably. I don't know. Uh, if there has been movies in between that have articulated like an allegory for revolution in this kind with this kind of like clarity uh, that Bong Joon-ho does in both this movie as well as Parasite. Uh, in Parasite, I guess like more, um, it's not exactly a revolution as much as it's just a conflict. Um, but I think what is what is fascinating about such artists is that they almost always present their work as a sort of metafictional roadmap for how an artist following them can do the same thing that they're accomplishing. And I feel like Bong in, the, in, in this case is kind of, uh, I, the array of characters, like, like how Andrew mentioned that they're all charismatic. I think it's kind of the point. Um, and like to, to cast the movie with Captain America at the center and like, you know, have him be this completely vacuous, um, like center, like person who receives ideas um, and doesn't really act on his own impulse in any way and like is constantly thinking of status quo all the time and has to be like kind of like you wag the keys in front of him to tell him that hey hey you know like you've got other stuff to do etc and like at every point you kind of have to do that to this guy and like even until the end like you know um but but the point is also the sacrificial aspect of it how you sacrifice that character at the end of the day um and like uh the as, as Andre pointed out um, in the beginning, uh, the use of racism or like racialization to kind of uh, its advantage, like casting these characters strategically to kind of portray uh, the, the struggle. And I think what is also kind of fascinating is all of the people who kind of, who reach the front of the train, I think are from the back of the train. I don't think there's anyone who's like a bourgeoisie member who's like co-conspiring 
in this uh, revolution, which is kind of, I think, also pretty telling that, uh, you know, it has to entirely come from the bottom, which is kind of, uh, I think, a pretty solid uh, statement at the end of the day. Um, and I think uh, here I would like to, I think, have uh, Jeremy speak about the, the integral theory. I think uh, I mentioned that in the beginning uh, on how you need to have a unification of the proletariat and like how you spoke about that um, in the context of, um, I know, Michael Brooks's show where he also brought up the cosmopolitan aspect. Um, it'd be cool if you can like maybe include that in your, in your uh, final thoughts as well. And sorry, I was I was on my phone, so I couldn't um, <laughs> I couldn't bring up that Jeremy was you know is an integral theory scholar. <laughs> oh man, it's kind of hard uh, on the fly to make uh, uh, intelligible connections, but I, I do want to mention like a couple of things in that spirit. One is, despite any of the criticisms of this particular film, I felt that watching the revolution happen, even knowing at the end of the film that this was go this was sort of quasi engineered or at least expected to happen, seeing that kind of class consciousness actually work and everybody know their role and they knew how to play this out. They knew how to do the fight. And they knew exactly what needed to happen to move to the next car and seeing that whole kind of revolutionary moment unfold was really refreshing uh, because I know some folks have also mentioned with, with uh, Bong's movies, he, he, and in this film, as well, it's like, okay, the, the, the back car eats itself, right? The working class devours itself. There's a kind of atomization of the working class. It's even in this film. And in spite of that, there's this great sense of solidarity and sacrifice in order to achieve, you know, this ultimate goal of getting to the front of the train and, and, and overtaking things. But um, I guess for me, like, like the, the, the integral connection, if there, if there is one that like really stands out for this film is this sense of, uh, uh, really connecting the, the the plight of that back car to uh, the planet, right? Like there, there's a sort of a planetary exit at the end of the film that I think, you know, despite, uh, again, like our protagonist sort of vacuousness in terms of his own motivations to do these things and his temptations with maintaining the, the train and the car. Bong Joon-ho uh, clearly feels about Chris Evans as an actor. Because yeah. throughout all yeah. of these interviews, he's derisively calling him Captain America. He never <laughs> has a, actually a nice thing to say about Chris Evans. What so, what an interesting choice then to choose Captain America and retool him as a, as a class consciousness hero, a revolutionary class hero, right? Like empty enough to be repurposed for another design. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah. uh, in, in terms of the integral, yeah, I, I think I think the. Uh, the idea that we need exit strategies, and this is something like Michael was bringing up with cosmopolitan socialism in, in his his last video, is is okay. How do we have a sufficiently like planetary consciousness, right? That that is sufficiently flexible, planetary, ecological, regenerative enough to to actually step out, step off the train, right? Like, what is that world? That's the only real plausible world because this train is headed for kind of a disaster in that sense. So, so yeah, there's like a lot of interesting convergences, I think. Um, but I'm just, I'm just pulling this off on the, on yeah. the fly myself. About do you want to know, do you want to know something darkly ironic, by the way, about that last integral theory stream is that um, Michael is pretty upset that the, that the numbers on it, I don't like, I don't know what was going on with YouTube at the time. 
the numbers on that stream like were zip like really like really it seems like like nobody really provided any kind of uh you know people weren't like watching that specific stream so the fact that like you know in the wake of his his passing like that stream has like been brought up over and over as like a you know as like the final thoughts of michael brooks um is is, is pretty amazing because i remember him i remember getting like one of the last texts i got from him going uh like what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like literally, I didn't get one super chat on that stream, and so, so the it's it's interesting that like that's the integral theory stream is really going like it's really been put out there as like the, the like like wow like like a, a warning from Michael Brooks about like the, you know the future and like an understanding of his philosophy because at, you know in, in that last moment he was like nobody <laughs> nobody watched that one video. Yeah, yeah. I, he I remember he texted me. It may have been the same night he was texting you about it but but he texted me after he posted it and he like sent me the link and he's like what do you think is this good is like did, did, does this make sense with the integral theory stuff we've been talking about so so i know i know that was really like heavy in his heart and also like intellectually he he was really interested in like bringing bringing integral theory somehow as he said strategically into the discourse on the left and and i don't know that that work still needs to be done but uh that's what we're here for. And at least that's what I'm here for <laughs> to continue to try to do. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Andy, final, final, final thoughts about this. Yeah. Oh man. It was, it was uh, kind of fun to watch because uh, I do really enjoy Korean films. Um, I don't often get to talk about them because uh, China tends to take up a lot more of my, uh, my thoughts lately. Um, uh, you know, uh, all right, calm down there, Joe Biden. Yeah, no. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was going more of the Trump China. China. I wish, I wish Biden had a way of saying it like that. That would be no, just as amazing. No, the, the, the Trump thing was he was saying China the whole time. China. It was his, it was his war on women. Yes. China. We need to stop China. <laughs> <laughs> but no. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's it's because the, the, the movies, uh, you know, there, there's lots of. Uh, social stuff from Korea that's in there that that uh, I don't know uh, you know probably flew over a lot of uh, American uh, you know viewers' heads uh, like like that fight sequence where they have the fish. Um, you see stuff like that. Yeah, what, what was what was what was the meaning of that? I don't. It really wasn't a meaning of anything. It's just um, when you're in a uh, fight like that, you want to get something that uh, on the blade that's going to like cause an infection. So yeah. uh, uh, that's what they were doing was was putting the fish blood on there that that would uh, like inflame the the cuts make it hurt worse. Yeah, because um, right, I was because I know Walking Dead they would they did the thing um, where they put the Walker blood on the or like the zombie blood on the weapons in order to yes. cause. Yeah. So I, so when I watched it, that's what I thought of. But then I was like, is that because it doesn't? It's not like it comes back and people are like, oh, my wounds are infected. No, I mean, I mean, like, like it's such a, it's such a, such a small moment, but it's, it's just also very Korean too, of like, cause, cause if you ever watch like, um, a lot of the the gangster films, that they, they actually have uh, fight sequences like this, where like it's just twenty five guys versus twenty five guys with hatchets, and, and uh, occasionally you'll see uh, them rub something on the uh, the blades, and this one they did it with a fish. All right, so this is this is the last uh, the last clip i'm gonna play before we uh end the stream i wanted to bring in um for the last one the the harvey weinstein thing where uh bong joon ho talks about um like you know making sure that 
Harvey, like Harvey Weinstein included that moment specifically um, by, you know, by manipulating him and telling him his, his father was a fisherman and whatever else. And then we'll end it after that. 제작은 한국 스튜디오에서 이제 한 건데 투자와 제작은 데 이제 에퀴지션이 이제 북미에 수입이 됐는데 이제 수입사가 이제 와인스타인 컴퍼니였던 거죠. 그런데 이제 그렇게 회사들 간의 결정이 되고 나니까 우리 프로듀서가 저한테 이제 책을 한걸 선물을 해주더라고요. 이거 읽어보라고. So the film was uh, produced by a Korean studio and. It was Korean financiers, um, but the Weinstein Company became the North American distributor that acquired the film. And once the decision was made, my producer gave me a book to read. Down and the Deep Pictures, right? The Skin. Right. Yeah. That's it. 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 t 그 많은 감독들이 이제 힘든 시간을 겪었던 얘기, 그 다음에 영화들이 어떻게 편집돼 나갔는가에 관한 얘기라서 그걸 읽어보니까 아 이제 야 내가 이게 마음의 준비를 해야겠구나라는 생각이 들었었죠. So the book was called Down and Dirty Pictures, and around 80% of the book was about Harvey Weinstein and about how a lot of filmmakers struggled uh, because of his tendency to cut things out of the films. Um, and once I read the book, I realized that I really had to prepare myself. But the editing is a long process. I have to say it for a long time. I just want to jump into the middle part of the book. But to tell you what happened in that year-long editing process, we would have to stay up all night. I just want to jump to the conclusion. Oh, yeah. Well, I was a happy ending. Yeah.였었어요.해피엔딩이었고.이제.저의.디렉터스컷을.간신히.결국은.지켰고.그것이.그대로.영화를.개봉할.수.있었게.됐었죠.여러가지.복잡한.과정을.거쳐서.그.그
it is dedicated to my father. My father was a my father was a fisherman, and then, but yeah, <laughs> you know, he does fucking lie. So. And then, <laughs> so Sorry, but anyway, <laughs> my father was actually graphic designer, so, <laughs> and he said, "Yeah, why 빨리 말하지 그랬 그랬냐고 이거 가족이 제일 중요한 거다. 그래서 저거 절대 자르면 안 된다라고 그분께서 얘기를 하셨죠." So then he replied, "Oh, why didn't you say that before? Family is the most important thing. We must not cut this out." <laughs> Yeah. And, but he, he did yeah. he did cut 20 minutes out of it and we discovered later several years later that that was the academy screener that went out really? <laughs> at the time we didn't know and actually there was a screening of that 25 minute cut the short version yeah so i think that whole clip is fascinating just you know the way that he's able to um not just i i like i think not just you know play Harvey Weinstein that way, but play the audience that way using translators. He, he clearly, um, he clearly like both understands and knows enough um, English to make the points that he's trying to make throughout this and then throws it to a translator, um, like, like as kind of a, a, a secondary source. So I think that part of it is absolutely fascinating because he does that throughout this movie too. When, you know, they're trying to engage with, uh, you know, with with the hacker, and then for the longest time, they're like, "Oh, it's the drug! It's it's the drugs! His brain's fried!" And then it all like they they use the the translating um thing because you know language is this is this interesting barrier um between people that kind of messes with the the aspects of class solidarity. But then also language is kind of a, a tool that you can use to um you know a, a tool that you can use to like get your way or manipulate an audience in front of you. Um, in those in those senses so I, I thought that's fascinating and then i also kind of watching that wondered you know tilda swinton's clearly in on what bong joon ho is trying to say which kind of makes it you know i mean her bringing up Gaddafi at that point like is that you know during that same interview like is that her trying to um create a buffer where margaret thatcher is no longer the object of ire and they're like oh well, here's someone you can more clearly represent by this because obviously they're talking to the bfi or is you know so it's interesting seeing both of those points i think in that um but yeah i mean and and obviously you know it's post harvey weinstein's fall from glory as they say <laughs> so yes yeah, so that's the final thing i wanted to uh, bring up in this conversation. The the fish scene was one was the one that kind of like actually convinced me that uh, he was trying to like really make a a statement about revolution and the possibility of it or the strategy of it, etc. Because until then, like kind of that's like when the balance really shifts. And as you said, uh, as you pointed out, Forrest, in like a conversation that we had, that um, that the fish kind of represents balance in the ecosystem and. Uh, uh, in fact, the fir the first people to disturb the balance are the the fascists, the the ski mask wearing people who kind of like are the ones who cut the fish and then draw first blood and seem to suggest that like you know that we're we're ready for violence and uh, if and you kind of have to be uh, as a consequence. And yeah, I mean, and and also it's kind of fascinating um, speaking to an earlier point of how movies like this 
don't get made i mean weirdly enough harry weinstein was somebody who got a lot of these kind of movies uh, made and like especially got them competing in uh, the oscars like did a, did a whole bunch of pre screening type of like strategic stuff although seemingly um, thanked it i mean seemingly took out his 25 minutes which you know i mean kind of probably would have tanked the movie considering that there probably 25 minutes of things he wanted would have wanted to include to move the plot forward and Harvey Weinstein was just cutting you know yeah he also like yeah, uh, he Weinstein cut um uh uh Guillermo del Toro's uh movie uh the oh the the one where it's about the giant cockroach that looks like a person and um uh there th- there's like a whole other film that that Guillermo del Toro made and then between reek shoots and the the uh Weinstein cut it's an incomprehensible bizarre little movie that that I watched in the theater um and uh but but like Guillermo del Toro went on to actually you know get that released which uh you know uh because he has he has a certain amount of power now but he didn't at the time because this was his first english language film uh Bon Joon-ho uh is is uh, you know at the time I uh believe this was his first american film but he already had such yeah like, right. um he he uh, cuz the host was well, huge so he was using so he was using um the same actors in the film he made previously but yeah i think this was the first hollywood like the hollywood uh distributed film that he made okay yeah but but like the the point is is that that he had a little bit more power than Guillermo del Toro in in 97 i think 98 whenever that uh movie came out with the bugs i got to look that up what that was but which one yeah. about chrono uh devil backbone or which one no it's it's one of his early films it's like his very first english language film um weinstein cut the movie to pieces and only recently mm. and i have not seen the director's cut um uh but i mean it's it's a question who gets to cut films right like if you're trying to portray a, a revolutionary message and the the person in charge of cutting your films is somebody as it always will be from the elite classes that don't necessarily want everything um brought in there like right. who gets to cut the films and who has the power really to um like like even after a film is made like as andre said like uh, hoping that more socialist and 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 leftist uh filmmakers and and you know people create art like both both in terms of like editors and in terms of uh filmmakers and in terms of publisher like who gets to decide what the final product because you know under under a capitalist society like media is a product like who gets to determine what that product signifies and who gets to remove details to make it uh, you know uh, kind of toothless in the way that Tilda Swinton was <laughs> by the way is the movie All right, so I'm going to cut it here. Um thank you all for joining this 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 panel. Um I want to do parasite soon if anyone, you know, anyone who wants to join that conversation. Um which Bong Joon-ho is pretty amazing because he said that um the, the difference between Snowpiercer so there's a connection between Snowpiercer and Parasite which is that somebody I guess at the end of the movie which I couldn't catch so maybe it was sliced by Harvey Weinstein but somebody i guess looks out from a basement in, in at the end of snowpiercer and that's his connection to parasite and then he obviously made parasite as a non-science fiction version of the same kind of class message but he's well, he's very aware that the science fiction element of it the dystopian element of it kind of takes away from 
the the realism of his message. So Parasite was a movie that he was like that he thought of writing um, during that filming process. Um, so yeah, so I want to do that soon. Um, thank you all for coming on to this uh, panel, and I'll just say, left is best. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.